Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast, your go-to source for personal, professional, and organizational growth and development. We hope you tune in often for all things people management, organizational development and change, organizational leadership, and social impact related. Maximize your personal and organizational potential with Human Capital Innovations Podcast. Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. In this HCI podcast episode, I talk with Augusto Lopez-Cleros about reconciling the tensions between competition and cooperation to promote human well-being. Augusto Lopez Claros, welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it is a pleasure to have a chance to chat with you today. You have quite the background. I'll share that with listeners in just a moment. And as we were talking in the pre-interview, um, you noted that you were traveling in the U.S. right now. You're on the East Coast, but you spent a, a tremendous amount of time working in the D.C. area, and you're actually from Madrid. Uh, where you normally uh, spend your time. So it's a it's a pleasure to have you. You clearly um, uh, spend a lot of time out our direction, this side of the pond. And uh, I'm super excited to explore a really important topic with you today. We're going to be focusing on reconciling the tensions between competition and cooperation to promote human well-being. Now, this applies broadly to all of society. So as we're talking about social or environmental issues around climate change, the arms race, poverty, inequality, and such. All of those, of course, have clear implications for human well-being. And there's a lot of um, facets uh, and nuances around this competition versus cooperation uh, tension. But it also applies directly within the organizational setting that we all find ourselves in when we're working. And we see many of those similar types of factors at play and we're just as interested in promoting human well-being in the workplace as we are about promoting human well-being in society at large and in our communities. So this is what we're going to be chatting about today as we get started. I wanted to share Augusto's bio with everybody. Augusto, chair of the Global Governance Forum, is an international economist with over 30 years of experience in international organizations, including most recently at the World Bank, where he was the director of the Global Indicators Group. Previously, he was chief economist at the World Economic Forum. Before joining the forum, he worked for several years in the financial sector in London. And I could go on and on, but is there anything else you would like to highlight or focus in on to share with listeners by way of your background and personal context before we dive on into the conversation? No, no, no. I think you have, you have said enough about my, my, my background, so that's fine. Thank you. Yeah, well, wonderful. And again, Uh, Chief Economist for the World Economic Forum, uh, Director of the Global Indicators Group with the World Bank. I mean, these are very important, prestigious types of positions where you're doing very important work. So I appreciate you joining. And we're going to have a chance to to get into some of those big challenges that I know has been at the the heart of much of the work that you've done over the last three decades. Um, So let's, let's start with our current situation. We're about two years into this pandemic. Uh, and 
it's been a challenging two years to say the least. Many people have been struggling in a wide variety of ways. Uh, in your view, what are some of the most important lessons that have emerged for us these past two years during the pandemic? That's a very good question, Jonathan. Um, I can think of two or three lessons that one can draw from this very, very difficult period over the last couple of years. Um, you know, you know the statistics. You know that that the pandemic has had you know very, very shocking consequences for employment, for economic activity. Um, true, the the um, uh, there is a period of economic recovery in many parts of the world. But, but the impact has been very widespread. And I think it will be many, many years before we're back to where we were in 2019, um, especially in the developing countries, you know, which account for a good chunk of the world's population. I think that one of the lessons that comes to mind, and remember, I'm an economist by training, and, and so I've done a lot of my professional work with, with international organizations like the IMF and the World Bank, the World Economic Forum. But one of the lessons that that comes out of the crisis is that we, we, I think we need to rethink very seriously our spending priorities, you know, within, within governments. Uh, as you know, the crisis found us completely unprepared. And I'm not talking about, you know, poor countries in Southern Africa. I'm, I'm talking about even, you know, high income countries in Europe and in North America. Uh, all of a sudden, this pandemic basically uh, exhibited the vulnerabilities that we have in our in our public health systems. Uh, and uh, the scientists are saying, obviously, that, you know, this is not the last pandemic that we will see. In the last 20 years, we have already had SARS, we had MERS, we had Ebola. This is the latest. And I think that we will see more rounds of, of, of pandemics in the future because they reflect something that is uh, structural in the global economy as we as it operates today because of population growth because of the imperative of economic growth and, and rising prosperity we are in a process of sustained expansion uh, the united nations says by the middle part of the century there will be uh, somewhere between nine and ten billion of us and this means we have to open up new roads we have to uh, make uh, uh, agricultural land available for food. We need to house and heat in the, win in the winter and cool in the summer, you know, a couple of extra billion people. And this essentially means that we are constantly in a process of entering habitats uh, where creatures li live that carry viruses against which we have no immunity, right? So unless unless we move to a kind of a radically different uh, uh, model of economic growth and development, uh, I think that this process will continue and we will be vulnerable to, to these kinds of pandemics in the future. Therefore, therefore, I would question, for instance, what is happening today, which is that we spend something like $5 trillion on an annual basis subsidizing energy gasoline, carbon, electricity, um, uh, 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 you know, sort of making climate change worse because the subsidy artificially boosts consumption. And these subsidies also are very regressive. They make income distribution worse because a lot of the benefits of the subsidy are actually concentrated on the people who have cars, on the middle classes living in the large cities. Right? They don't go to the poor, illiterate uh, 
women in living in villages in India, right? And so here we have a public policy that is doing two things simultaneously. It's worsening income distribution and it's accelerating climate change. Uh, if, if we had money to throw away, I would say, fine, you know, it is a bad public policy, but in fact, we don't have money to throw away. We countries live within constrained fiscal environments. There are very few countries in the world that have the ability to issue bonds in their own currency, which everybody's willing to buy. The US Treasury, the European Central Bank can do that because there are investors all over the world who are happy to buy those bonds and therefore finance the, the deficits of European countries and the United States. Uh, Let's see if the Argentinians will succeed in issuing bonds denominated in the Argentinian currency. It's not going to happen, right? So we have constrained resources. And I think that governments should basically think, you know, are we spending our resources wisely? Maybe we should spend more on preparing for the next pandemic. And this brings me to another issue, which is related to this, and which is also, I think, a lesson of this, of this uh, pandemic our concept of national security needs to be entirely uh, rethought. You know, when, when politicians, I'm thinking of the United States, talk about national security, the debate is usually framed in military terms. You know, we, it, it concerns, you know, the modernization of our air force, our, our land, land forces. Uh, in the case of nuclear powers, you know, the modernization and the upgrading of the nuclear deterrent and so on and so forth. Let me ask you, how useful were thousands of nuclear weapons in the US arsenal <laughs> last year in the middle of a pandemic, right? Completely yeah. useless, right? completely useless. Um, um, so, so maybe, maybe uh, since we are allocating on a global scale, trillions of dollars every year, you know, to propping up our military establishments and maintaining 193 different armies, navies, air forces, and so on. Uh, I think that, you know, we should be taking a hard look as to whether those are in fact the priorities that we, we want to spend our money on today. You know, I think that it's much, much better to think of perhaps strengthening our systems of collective security, which will then not create artificially the need to overspend on defense and on weapons and all these systems, the ultimate aim of which, as you well know, is to kill other people. Right. I mean, you know, these weapons, we can we can disguise this debate and talk about defense and talk about, you know, protecting ourselves from adversaries and so on and so forth. But we're doing a bit too much of that. And, and the COVID-19 has shown that we, we basically need to rethink the entire structure of our budgets. Uh, yeah. And I'm not talking about the U.S. I'm talking about the, on, on a global scale. Well, yeah, that's so interesting. And clearly the pandemic has exacerbated a lot of challenges and it's shown a light on a lot of the existing and persisting challenges around climate change, poverty, inequality, and such, and, and just really made it worse. And, and so, for example, one thing that has been noted many times is uh, that some have reported the pandemic has set women's equality in the workplace back a generation um, due to a variety of factors. But essentially, it's it's already taken a vulnerability. It's it's exacerbated it and made it worse. And and we we see that in many other areas, just as you were just describing. Uh, and and it's interesting to me too because the way you were ch talking just now, uh, it's it seemed to um, 
not take for granted some of what I would suggest are probably basic assumptions of how the world works that many people hold. And I think that's a really healthy thing to do. The pandemic has given us a chance to step back and to reevaluate and reflect and to ask why. Why have we been doing things this way? Does it still need to be done this way? Whether we're talking about governments, public policy, whether we're talking about within organizations and, and leaders and policy practices and procedures internally, we've had a chance to ask ourselves why. And I think that is a super important lesson that I just took from what you just shared. Do we need to continue doing things the way we've always done it You know, over the last half century or more, simply because that's the way we've always done it and that's the way other countries are doing it. And so we just perpetuate the problem, we exacerbate the problems um, and we're not actually solving anything. And, and that's really concerning to me. So I think that's one clear lesson from all of this is, it's, is let's step back Let's challenge our assumptions. Let's challenge the status quo. And there's nothing sacred about the way we've been doing things. Uh, and, and I like to get past the dogma of, of just continuing what uh, has been done in the past. No, no I, I think what you're saying is absolutely essential, Jonathan, because, you know, the alternative is that if we continue on business as usual, then I think that the next... Uh, years and decades are going to be basically very difficult for us. We're going to be confronting a series of, you know, shocks to the global economy and to our habitat and to our political system that will make governing the world very, very difficult, right? So I, I think you're absolutely right. COVID-19 is a, is a, is a godsend opportunity, if, if I may characterize it that way, you know, to actually uh, rethink our global governance architecture. Yeah, and, it's, and it's an opportunity to that, re, it's a hard reset opportunity, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Unfortunately, and I, I don't want to I don't want to dampen your enthusiasm uh, since you are raising such an important <laughs> question. You know, unfortunately, I don't see at the moment, you know, that kind of introspective rethinking in, in our political leadership, right? And that is very worrying. Hopefully it will change, but it is very worrying. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I try to to be optimistic because what's the alternative? <laughs> like, yeah. So I, I try to be hopeful and optimistic while also, you know, let's do the work to drive the change we want to see. Um, but we also have to be realistic. And I think you're right. I I I feel the same way, and it and it is frustrating and it is discouraging. Um, something you were saying just a few minutes ago that really connects also back to how I framed up this episode. As you were starting to talk in terms of global economy, in terms of nation states and, and geopolitical you know, environment around these tensions uh, between competition and cooperation. And the status quo has been competition, right? I mean, largely. There, there's certainly um, some cooperation that happens between countries, obviously, and we're in an interconnected global economy, and we have uh, treaties, and we have various agreements and, and, and whatnot. Uh, but Largely, uh, you know, certainly in the United States, we're a very com competition-driven society, competition-driven culture, uh, and many other parts of the world are very similar. Competition isn't a bad thing necessarily. In and of itself, there's nothing wrong with competition, but it, you can take it to an unhealthy level. And much of the problems I see persisting, you know, societal, political, economic, environmental problems that I see persisting. I feel like th these competitive forces are actually making it worse. Uh, and so we need to have healthy levels of competition, certainly in society and in organizations, but we need to 
match that with a cooperative spirit, like the ability to collaborate and to cooperate in order to get to the greatest good uh, for everyone. Uh, and, and that clearly is a tension. It's a hard thing to thread that needle. Can you tell us a little bit more of your perspective around how we reconcile that tension? Check out our new weekly LinkedIn newsletter, Alchemizing Human Capital, exploring industry trends via original research and interviews with executives and thought leaders from across the globe. We look forward to having you join us. Bluer Than Indigo Leadership, the journey of becoming a truly remarkable leader. Early in my adult life, I learned about an Asian proverb that translates as bluer than indigo. If you think about the color indigo, it is a brilliant, deep, and vibrant blue, what some would call the bluest of blues. To have something that is bluer than indigo is rare and truly remarkable. Contrary to popular myth, there is no one-size-fits-all or cookie-cutter approach to effective leadership. There is no silver bullet, no secret sauce, no go-to model that will solve all of your problems. The truth is, great leaders have all had their unique strengths and flaws, and have all had to discover and then pave their own distinctive path in their life's journey to fulfill their leadership potential. Bluer Than Indigo Leadership will help you discover your own path and explore those ordinary, everyday actions that will help you respond to an uncertain future and produce extraordinary results for individuals, teams, and organizations. Yes, of course. You know, I had a, a very good friend, uh, William Hatcher. He was a famous Canadian mathematician and philosopher. And uh, we overlapped in Moscow for a few years in the 1990s. I was the representative of the IMF in, in Russia over a period of several years. And William Hatcher was was essentially doing mathematical research at one of the top research institutions in Russia in the area of mathematics. But he was also a philosopher, a very famous platonic philosopher. And we used to talk a lot about competition and cooperation. You know? And he said, he, he, he said the following. He said that he used the, the analogy of a, of a piano competition, right? Because in, in Moscow, every four years, they have the very famous Tchaikovsky piano and violin and cello competition. And he said, competition is a, a kind of a horizontal comparison at a moment in time of your skills with respect to the skills of, other, of others, right? So you win the gold medal in, in, in piano if on that particular day or over a period of several days, you know, you can show to the jury that, that you are technically and musically, you know, better than the rest of you. Right? So it's this horizontal comparison. And he contrasted that with something that he called the pursuit of excellence. In the pursuit of excellence, what you as a competitor in this, in this piano competition are doing is you're saying to yourself, I will try to play the piano today as best as I have ever played it in my life, irrespective of what other people are doing. Right? Because what matters in life is whether I am better today than I was yesterday not whether I am better than the guy next door, right? And so he says that people who pursue excellence have an incentive to cooperate with others. People who are driven by this horizontal competition 
actually have an incentive to sabotage others because that will lead them to a somewhat higher probability of being chosen the winner, right? And so the system of values that underpins, you know, pure competition, you know, is one that does not uh, encourage a collaboration. It actually encouraged sabotage. And so he gave me the example of, for instance, this was well, well known, uh, a professor assigns a paper to a, 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 a law school class, you know, from a book in the library. A guy runs to the library, cuts the paper out so that nobody else will have access to it, right? That's, that's a kind of an extreme example of competition, right? Where he will, he will get the paper for himself to make sure that nobody else can read it and he will, be, you know, he will come out on top, right? In the case of the pursuit of excellence, it encourages cooperation because every time it is not about what others are doing, it is about whether you are better today than, than you were yesterday, right? Now, obviously that's, a, you know, it's, it's an interesting example. I think it's a very insightful example from which, from which one can learn a great deal. Now, in the current global context, I think you will agree with me, I hope, that when we look at the variety of problems that we're facing, climate change, the unraveling of our nuclear order, issues of terrorism, uh, the management of global pandemics, uh, questions of inequality and poverty. You know, you mentioned poverty a few minutes ago. I work for the last 10 years at the World Bank and, you know, the, in, for 30 consecutive years since 1990 until COVID, we had made progress every single year without exception in reducing the incidence of extreme poverty from something like 2 billion people, which was, you know, one third of the world's population back in the year, in the year 1990, you know, to basically about 750 million or so in 2019 on the eve of the pandemic. Okay, one and a half years later, that progress has, has been reversed. We have added probably 100, 120 million people, you know, to the, to the headcount of extreme poverty which is a very austere definition. You don't want to be extremely poor in the world, okay? You live on the edge of existence to the point where some of my colleagues at the World Bank are saying that this 2030 sustainable development goal number one of eliminating poverty forever is probably out of reach. We're only in 2022, but it's probably out of reach. You mentioned gender, absolutely. Gender, women have, have suffered a huge setback as a result of, of COVID. Uh, the incidence of violence against women, according to UN Women, has been on the rise because of the lockdowns and, and, and so on, you know, men and boyfriends taking it out on, on girlfriends and wives and mothers and, and, so, and so on, you know, their frustrations and their anger and so on. So all of these problems, which I just referred to, are insoluble outside of a context of international cooperation. Right. You know, the Europeans are probably the most advanced in dealing with the problem of climate change and recognizing and doing something about it. But by themselves, without the support of China, without the support of the United States and India, who are now the biggest emitters, the Europeans are not going to succeed. So obviously, this is an example, a very dramatic example of how we need to rethink our architecture of international cooperation. We need to strengthen the United Nations. We need to create new agencies on the environment, for instance, who can impose binding restrictions on emissions. Not what we have today, which is ad hocery and goodwill. You know, we, we applaud the coming out of COP26 or Paris in 2015, but when you actually look at the letter of the agreements, 
you know, there are no binding obligations. Countries can, you know, can do as they wish. And if they don't fulfill their targets, there are no penalties. And when the scientists add up all the numbers, they're inconsistent with the, with the temperature rise, which has been embedded in the declaration coming out of the meeting. So it's really very unprofessional and, 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 and lacking in seriousness. And, and I think as a result of this, what we see is you know, constant increasing emissions uh, you know, I just finished reading, it's the pure coincidence, literally half an hour ago, I finished reading an article in the last issue of the New Yorker about permafrost in Siberia, in, uh, you know, in, in Russia. As you know, because of, uh, um, you know, sort of temperatures in the northern hemisphere, um, the, the soil uh, uh, in, in a, a good chunk, part of the Soviet Union is frozen, it's frozen, but it is flowing. As long as it thaws, it releases carbon dioxide and methane into the atmosphere. And there is a possibility that at some point, you know, we reach a, a, some kind of critical threshold of temperature rise, you know, where in fact there is a massive increase in, in carbon dioxide and methane in the atmosphere, which completely changes the, you know, the forecasts that the scientists are working now, uh, which suggests that we still have another 10 years, right? So maybe, maybe not. So you know, it, is a, it is an emergency. It is an emergency. And unfortunately, I don't think the scientists are recognizing it is an emergency. And the reports that they're issuing are increasingly alarming. But there is a kind of a disconnect between what the scientists are saying on the one hand and what the governments are, are ready and willing to do on the other. Oh, very well said. And it, it is sobering, isn't it? Uh, the challenges we face are staggering. And again, coming back to this tension between uh, com com competition and cooperation, it just illustrates there is no possible way that we can do it alone. We can't solve any of these major social, political, economic, uh, environmental problems and challenges unless there's more cooperation. And bringing it back into the workplace, I would say the same thing. When you have um, hyper competition, a hyper competitive culture within an organization, what you end up seeing rather than collectively trying, you know, everyone coming together to try to help the organization succeed is you end up having sabotage. You end up having people undermining each other on their very same team or in, in other units. Uh, and instead of people collaborating and cooperating to, to respond to an external risk or challenge, uh, you, you have people basically trying to protect themselves, their own positions, rather than helping the organization, organization succeed. And, and so we need to get to a place of, of cooperation. There, there are no serious challenges or problems, whether we're talking about society as a whole or within an organization, that can be handled with you know, a, a single-prong approach. We have to take holistic systems approaches to these really complex, challenging problems. And if we can't do that, we're not going to move the needle. It doesn't matter how good our hearts are and our intentions, and, and it doesn't even matter how hard we work. If we just simply can't do it alone. Uh, and so th this is a call out anyone listening, you know, within your sphere of influence, push for greater levels of cooperative and collaborative culture in your organizations, but also in your communities, in your local governments, any place where you have a voice, any place where you have uh, influence, we need to be making this push, uh, because there are staggering challenges that we face. And there's no possible way we can overcome them unless we all come together to try to tackle them. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, ultimately, ultimately, I think that this raises a kind of a more fundamental, really 
practically philosophical issue, you know, which is that we need to ask ourselves at the individual level, you know, what are we here for, right? What, what, is, our, uh, what is our purpose on, 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 you know, during the short planet, during the short time that we inhabit the planet Earth, you know, walking around on the surface of the earth, you know, from early childhood until we all become old and pass away and are buried, uh, uh, you know, on, on, on this planet, you know. And it seems to me that the answer to that question is less, you know, how to promote my interests uh, uh, at whatever cost. And the answer is more, how can I cooperate and how can I bring blessings to the lives of other people? I think that if we really think hard about it, you know, I think that a philosophy of life that is based on the idea that our purpose as individuals, you know, is actually to bring blessings to those that are around us, our, ch our children, our parents, our friends, our spouses, you know, the society at large, that will, will you know, create a much more healthy environment in which the idea of collaborating with China and with uh, Russia and with India and Brazil and, and, and so on in sorting out these serious challenges that we face becomes more feasible, right? On, on, uh, at the other extreme, if it is all about me, if I'm here to become wealthier, richer, more famous and so on, then, then that it, uh, uh, correspondingly creates a context in which cooperation occupies third place. Uh, and if it does so, then we're not going to solve these problems, and that's going to come back to hit us all in a very, a very painful way, I think, in coming years and decades. No? Very well said. There's a lot to think about from this conversation, and I encourage listeners to to take the time to do some that self-reflection and to think about your teams, your your organizations, your culture, and your surrounding communities, um, what you might be able to do to to better support this kind of collaborative um, and cooperative culture and environment. And I like something you said towards the beginning of the conversation. It's, it's about excellence, seeking excellence in life and in all that we do. And if we're seeking excellence rather than purely competition, just making, it doesn't matter how well I do, as long as I'm just a little bit better than the next person next to me. Um, but if I'm truly shooting for excellence, then I'm, my, my whole perspective changes. And I'm not only trying for excellence of, for myself, but for everyone around me, because a rising tide lifts all ships. And if all of us work better together, then all of us are going to be better and we're going to be better than we ever were. And so that's the kind of world I want to live in. And it, it is possible. And certainly within an organizational setting, it is possible for us to create teams and a, a, a organizational dynamic where that kind of an environment exists and where it occurs on a daily basis. So uh, I, I hope we, we can get there. Uh, as we wrap up today, I just wanted to give you a chance to share with listeners how they can get connected with you uh, and then give us a final word on the topic for today. The, the best way to connect uh, uh, with me is through the website of the Global Governance Forum, which is the organization of which uh, I am the chair and executive director. Uh, the web address is uh, globalgovernanceforum.org. Very easy to get to. You will see a, a, a very nice uh, website that will uh, inform you about the kinds of initiatives that we are currently working on. Um, a, 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 a last word uh, of wisdom, if, if I may say so. <laughs> you know, um, you, mentioned, you mentioned gender and women in, 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 in your remarks. And uh, um, 
this is an area in which I have done quite a bit of work over the years, actually, you know, essentially examining, you know, the cost that we have to pay, we have paid over the last centuries uh, as a result of the marginalization of women from, from you know, from, from political power, from the corporate boardrooms and from society at large. We have made a lot of progress in recent decades in, in, in this area but we still have a long, long way to go. And it seems to me that until such time as women are fully engaged in the world, uh, as long, uh, as, uh, 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 until such time as they are um, uh, prime ministers and presidents and uh, sitting in the senates and in the, and the, and the congresses of, of the world's legislators, we are going to continue to live in a, in a kind of a male dominated world, you know, uh, which has been very costly for us. Um, look at what is happening today, you know, in, in the international landscape, you know, um, out of the 193 member countries of the United Nations, a mere 11% are actually led by, by women, you know, either as prime ministers and heads of state. So we still live in a testosterone-filled, male-dominated world, and that has been very costly for human progress. It has been uh, very destructive for, 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 for human development. Look at the 20th century, look at World War I, World War II, the Holocaust. I mean, you know, it's our blood-soaked uh, 20th century. So to me, an indication of the very high price that we have paid of living in a male-dominated world. So uh, uh, to, the, to, the, to the women among your listeners, uh, please get involved, uh, set your ambitions high, um, work on being politically active and joining the Senate and the House of Representatives and uh, aiming very, very high because the world needs to have your perspectives and it needs to bring into the decision making the particular values and attributes that you have as women. Very well said. I really appreciate your time and your willingness to share all of your experience and insights with me and my listeners today. I encourage listeners to reach out, get connected, find out more about what Augusto can do for you, check out his work. And as always, I hope everyone can stay healthy and safe, that you can find meaning and purpose at work each and every day. And I hope you all have a great week. alchemy of truly remarkable leadership, ordinary everyday actions that produce extraordinary results. Consider how the nature of work has shifted over the past 50 years with increased globalization, rapid technological advancement, and the shift in economic composition. The average job of today looks very different than the average job of 50 years ago. What will the jobs and organizations of tomorrow look like? Moreover, what does this all mean for organizational leaders? What are the core competencies and capabilities of organizations and their leadership that are prepared for continued disruption and geopolitical and socioeconomic shifts? Regardless of what the future holds, increasingly, leaders need to be socially minded, data-driven, decisive, champions of talent, and disruptors of the traditional notions of leadership, teams, organizations, and work. The alchemy of truly remarkable leadership will help you to explore your own leadership competencies and capabilities and consider ways to apply and implement them into your workplace and personal life.
check out Human Capital Innovations magazine, Human Capital Leadership. Human Capital Leadership is a free interactive e-magazine with the mission to help individuals, leaders, and organizations find innovative approaches to maximize their human capital potential. We publish issues quarterly in August, November, February, and May. Take a look at the latest issue and let us know what you think. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. I hope you stay healthy and safe and that you have a great week. Check out our new weekly LinkedIn newsletter, Alchemizing Human Capital, exploring industry trends via original research and interviews with executives and thought leaders from across the globe. We look forward to having you join us.